everybody always thinks of severe weather with Oklahoma, you know, it's synonymous with Oklahoma, but the winter weather is actually a harder forecast for us because Oklahoma is usually on that fine line of if we're going to get, you know, all rain, maybe some rain and some sleet or some ice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tinker Talks. This is an audio format podcast that covers everything that happens behind the fence line of Tinker Air Force Base. Today we're talking about a subject near and dear to the hearts of many Oklahomans, and that is weather. Uh, This state is famous and actually infamous for its weather, and today we're talking to Captain Johnny Martin of the Operation Support Squadron Weather Office, and we're going to talk about military weather and its importance to the mission. So, sir, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for having Um, me. Now, do we call you Captain Martin or Jetstream? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, yeah, Jetstream is what some people are calling. All right. Either works, I guess. Seems very fitting. So, um, before we get into uh, today's topic and conversation, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give us the the brief 200-word or less description background about who you are and how you got here. Yeah, so I'm uh, captain in the Air Force, as you mentioned. I've been in uh, about eight years now, mm-hmm. uh, actually eight years uh, this week um, oh, is the anniversary of my commissioning. Thank right. you, yeah. So uh, commissioned out of uh, Purdue University in Indiana. That's where I'm originally from and uh, studied atmospheric science there. So mm-hmm. pretty convenient. Then I went in as a uh, weather officer. Uh, I've had a couple duty stations before this. Uh, started out at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base at Tucson under Very the cool. uh, 25th Operational Weather Squadron. And then I was there for a couple years and then went out to uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California from there to the 30th Operations Support Squadron. A little different than ROSS here because uh, the mission out there with Space Command was dealing with space launches. So I actually forecasted for a lot of the uh, the space launches out of there, wow. uh, as well as uh, the Minuteman 3 uh, ballistic uh, missile test launches as well out of uh, Vandenberg. And then uh, came here to Tinker in uh, April of uh, 2017. So mm-hmm. been here a little over two years now, two and a half years, and uh, just loving it, being in the kind of the center and the focal point of weather for uh, the U.S. and severe weather, what everybody thinks of in Tornado Alley. And and we are definitely, we're going to touch on that uh, here in a little bit because I I think probably a lot of people find that pretty fascinating and interesting. But um, so what did get you into, interested in, you went to Purdue and graduated, Mm -hmm. obviously the atmospheric science degree lends itself to this, but why the military and and what got you interested in, is it meteorology? Is that the same thing? It it is. It is. Um, It kind of goes, it's synonymous with atmospheric science and uh, meteorology. Um, So I, I knew I always wanted to serve in the military. My Families had a long history of serving the military. I had a uh, grandfather who flew B-17s in World War II in the oh. European theater. Awesome. Um, my brother and sister are actually uh, in the military as well. My brother's a Marine pilot. My sister's in the Navy on submarines. And I knew I wanted to do weather, too, mm-hmm. so I did my research, and I wanted to be a weather forecaster. And I, and I saw that the Air Force is really the, the only uh, branch that has such a robust career field for um, – for weather officers and forecasting, mm-hmm. and we can go pretty much anywhere in the Air Force because weather is always going to impact installations, and we actually do Army weather support as well. So the Army outsources to the Air Force um, for their weather support as well. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. I, mm-hmm. I did not know that. Um, is it more of a robust career field than even the Navy? I guess 
It is. Uh, so the Navy deals a lot more with oceanography, of course, mm-hmm. with you know wave heights, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they will have some um, weather uh, officers as well as enlisted on their on their larger uh, ships, like their carriers, that sort of thing. Right. Um, but it's definitely uh, a little more focused and a little more um, smaller uh, career field than what we have for the Air Force, where, like I said, we can go re- really anywhere in the world. Right. That's amazing. So... You go to Purdue, you, you decide to join the Air Force. What's what's training like? It, you already have this degree, so you're pretty well versed in mm-hmm. this career field. What's training like in the Air Force? Uh, the Air Force is really putting all... So the degree we, we, we get out of college is a lot of the science and background and everything. Mm-hmm. But the Air Force, what, what the training is so good about in the Air Force is actually applying it and actually using all that background to an operational setting. Right. And a lot of times that means, you know, translating what we know from a science background to the end users, be it, you know, pilots or, like I said, for space launches, whatever the that installation's mission is. And so being able to to communicate what those you know what the weather impacts are and actually putting your science to use and and putting it to you know an operational use at the you know the tactical and operational level right is it a long school uh it's about two and a half months down at keesler the weather officer course yeah for uh for newly uh commissioned uh lieutenants and uh like i said it's it's Pretty much you come in and they know that you have the background, a lot of the thermodynamics, uh, dynamic mm-hmm. background as well, and you know, differential equations, a lot of the, the big complicated math. They, so they, they move <laughs> just on. Just that to the, term, actually. Oh. You just lost me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's, it can be a handful in, mm-hmm. in college. So um, it's, it's nice when you get to uh, the weather officer course and actually applying those those right. concepts and that's awesome. to, and, to the Air Force. And Keesler is a pretty good place to go to school for, for weather. Um, I actually had an opportunity to, to go to Keesler oh, okay. for a school down there as well. And uh, it's, you know, of course you had to, we're, they were still signs of the, the hurricane of that it, and it flooded half of half of the front end of the base there but uh so it seems like that's probably a pretty good area to it to is with. and and a lot of the civilians down there are still the instructors have you know lived through katrina back in 05 um actually a good friend of mine he's an ima now he's a weather major uh mm-hmm. he was actually in charge of the weather schoolhouse when that all happened wow. and it was it was scary times just hearing his stories about it with you know just not knowing, just kind of the fog of war of what, you know, if you had to send people back home or not, or, you know, what to do with the people that are TDY there. Right. And people trying just to figure out if they had a home to go back to. Well, and pretty critical for, for what you do, um, not just the, the flying and launching mm-hmm. aircraft and what they're going to be dealing with, but just the, the safety in general. It puts it all in perspective. Yeah, yeah it definitely no does. Especially with what's happened to Tyndall lately. Oh, and, yeah. And off it, and off with it. the flooding. Mm-hmm. Yep, sure is. And so you talk about space a little bit, and not to get too far mm-hmm. off topic, but uh, is there weather outside of the atmosphere? Like, is that is that possible? <laughs> like, is there weather in space? Not not what we think of for an atmosphere. Right. No uh, wind gusts. Or yeah. Anything? So it, I kind of break it down to terrestrial weather. You know, being what we think of here. You know, thunderstorms, that sort of thing. Right. You know, snow, rain, precipitation. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you hear the term space weather, mm-hmm. it's usually only dealing with uh, uh, radiation and those sort of things from the sun. So you hear like geomagnetic storming and uh, solar flares. Mm -hmm. That's what we call space weather, but it's not really weather with what you and I usually think about with it. And it's it's not typically... um, So 
when you hear uh, atmospheric science, that's all my degree, you know, is, is pretty much dealing with just the atmosphere here on Earth. Right. What The stuff we deal with. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So weather flight commander, that is, that is your position, mm-hmm. and it's a big title to bear. So how much of your job involves collaborating and communicating with other flights, um, such as the airfield ops and airfield management? Uh, a lot of it does, um, and it's really nice that we have, uh, yeah, AM Ops, uh, Airfield Management Operations, and um, which, and as well as the ATC, the Air Traffic Control. Um, you know, that's all rolled into one flight, the Air Operations, uh, Air Airfield Operations flight, mm-hmm. um, into our squadron with us. Uh, so a lot, we do a lot of coordination with them, especially this time of year, getting into the winter right. weather. Um, they need to know uh, how, you know, what we're going to be seeing in terms of. Um, of winter precipitation, you know, if we get ice or snow on the airfield, because that's, you know, a primary, um, you know, the primary means of our, of our mission. So we need to Mm -hmm. make sure that, that they know what we're going to be expecting and we have to communicate with them that, Hey, this is what we're looking at. This is the latest on the forecast. So, uh, when, when we're communicating up to, you know, Colonel Filchek and the other wing leaders, we're also communicating within our own squadron to those air, to the airfield functions as well. Right. And, you know, it's it's funny because you think in a deployed environment, um, you see a lot of weather briefings, and I think weather briefings mm-hmm. probably before every single flight. Absolutely. Um, but I always kind of enjoy when we go to staff meetings and, and you're there, mm-hmm. like we kick off a staff meeting every single time with a weather, with weather. brief. And mm-hmm. it just, I was for some weird giddy you know, thing it always because I'm no longer in the military, but it always makes me feel like I'm I'm back in and, and downrange because mm-hmm. it's like the the one thing you know is going to be consistent every time there's a weather brief. Yes, yeah, yeah. It usually leads off pretty much any wing commander stand up throughout the Air Force. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's huge. and Army <laughs> greatly important. So outside of your squadron, um, I know you guys work pretty closely with the weather service down in Norman. I think we even have some some people stationed there uh, full-time? We, we do have some people there. Uh, at the um, So National Weather Service has a lot of different facets to it, um, and it's a lot, especially down in Norman. That's their, you know, their main uh, control point, their main um, headquarters for uh, outside of Washington, D.C., pretty much a lot of their um, developments down there in Norman. Right. Uh, partnered with OU as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But they have the Radar Operations Center there, which can, uh, actually controls all the weather radars throughout uh, CONUS, throughout the U.S., and we do have um, some Air Force personnel down there at mm-hmm. the Radar Operations Center. So what kind of work do you guys do with them? Do you, do you partner in, like, studying atmospheric science or, or patterns or anything? There, there's some of that, uh, with uh, especially with our um, some of our development uh through AFIT, our development uh, advanced degrees, mm-hmm. we'll partner with the National Weather Service down there. A lot of the research uh, portion of that, like I said, they they partner with uh, OU down there as well. Right. Um, so that that's kind of uh, the extent of our relationship with them is a lot of kind of the research and climatology that sort of thing. Um, I know for Oklahoma, they do they um, there is actually the National Weather Center, which is um, OU's Department of Atmospheric Science down there, puts on a uh, symposium uh, every year that kind of deals with emergency management mm-hmm. as well as uh, you know just kind of lessons learned from some severe weather and winter weather here in the in Oklahoma, right. and so all of the uh, 
the installations on in Oklahoma attend, as well as the uh, emergency managers from those installations. And so that, and then National Weather Service actually, uh, um, they attend as well. So it's kind of a nice kind of, you know, comparison to see, like, you know, kind of share each other's notes from and lessons learned. The, the who's who out there. Absolutely. <clears throat> so Tinker is pretty massive. I mean, there's there's more than 30,000 people here on, on any given day. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone from active duty and civilians to their dependents and retirees, uh, and one of the biggest jobs and arguably most stressful um, has to be dealing with weather, calls that determine base opening, base closure, do we delay, do we not delay, um, because you affect a lot of people, and, and of course you affect a lot of money. If, mm-hmm. if we do. there's a piece of this installation that has to stop working, I mean, that's that's a lot of uh, dollars and cents that is. A lot are of stopping. Is, a lot of dollars and cents so and time. Mm-hmm. How, uh, how stressful is that for, for you and your team to be the ones that kind of at the tip of that spear making that call? It can be um, pretty stressful, especially this time of year. Um, everybody always thinks of severe weather with Oklahoma, you know, it's synonymous with Oklahoma, but Mm -hmm. the winter weather is actually a harder forecast for us because Oklahoma is usually on that fine line of if we're going to get, you know, all rain, maybe some rain and some sleet and some ice or Mm -hmm. maybe all ice or all snow. So we have to have a really good handle on what we're expecting for that forecast, because as you mentioned, it's a big deal, uh, closing down this base, even for one shift, you know, one one eight-hour shift, that, that, that sets a lot of the mission sets here on this base behind uh, big time. And so we want to make sure we get it right. Uh, mm-hmm. We want to make sure we're not <laughs> crying wolf, too, and saying everything every time is going to be the worst thing. So we, uh, But we have a really good team that uh, can really step back and look at it over the course of several days leading up to an event. Right. And we, we, we kind of uh, we communicate early and often, too, with the leadership. So... They're not surprised. Right, which is good. The leadership doesn't <laughs> yeah. like to Don't be surprised. Don't like to surprise, yes. <laughs> so do you good guys, or bad. <laughs> right, exactly. So do you guys take training in thick skin? Uh, because if you call for half inch of ice and I guess, you know, the air temperature stays just above 32 mm-hmm. or the ground temperature is, oh, yeah, is like too said, warm and then you've, you've misdiagnosed <laughs> the big storm coming and, you know, the... It seems like weather forecasters are right there at the brunt of of all the rotten tomatoes. So. Absolutely, and everybody always says, you know, that's the best job in the world because you never have to be right. But uh, <laughs> but here we do because you know there's a lot of uh, you know people's you know lives on the line. You know, right. with trying to get into work and the mission, making sure uh, that we get it get ready. But um, but yes, it it is. We do have to have thick skin and. And we have to have a short memory. You know, it's like baseball. You know, if you strike out six times, you can't get up expecting to strike out the seventh time. So we have to just get back in there and try to do (laughs) – and we learn from it. We, um, If we do miss a forecast like that, like Mm -hmm. you described, we do a a forecast review where we have lessons learned. We brief that in our monthly uh, station meetings at the weather flight. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just a complete, you know, brain dump and forget about it, move on. We actually take those lessons learned like, hey, what actually happened here from what we were thinking and what actually – and then what happened and where the differences are. Which is, is very good. That's so important to do. Um, and of course, you know, you can't always be right with the weather. There's a, a no. lot of factors that, that come and go out of that. Um, and I think most people in the state of Oklahoma really understand that weather can be very difficult to predict mm-hmm. um, because 
on any given day, you guys are all right or all wrong, you know, or off just a little bit. Uh, and of course, everybody in weather in this state, including you guys, deal with emergency response because it's critical that there are lives at stake. But yes. one thing that makes it maybe even a little more challenging for you and your team is that not only are you dealing with the lives, but you have billions of dollars of taxpayer money sitting out there on ramps, uh, workloads. Um, there are missions, you know, do we fly? Do we, do we move planes? Do we hangar planes? I mean, there's just a, a lot of extra that goes into that, but there is, um, so I know people understand weather here. It's one of the, the most fascinating things. When I first moved to Oklahoma, there was a rainstorm that came up the first night I was here and the weather stayed into the TV channels for the whole night. And I was really <laughs> wondering like, Wow, this is, I mean, it yeah, just seems like a thunderstorm. You don't see that every time. No. You know, everywhere you go. You don't see every yeah. news station having their own, you know, weather helicopters up either or their whole storm chaser teams. Right. It's it's pretty wild to it's, see. It's big. It's robust. And, <laughs> and we go back to the, the lessons learned thing, and I think this is pretty critical. So a couple of years ago, I'm pretty sure you were here, mm-hmm. we had a tornado drop in on one side of the base, literally mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Um tore up a little bit over there. Fortunately, nobody got hurt. There was a, a little bit of damage. Uh, and then it lifts up, jumps over the highway, goes down into a parking lot of some some stores across the highway, mm. tears some of that up. But like nobody saw this thing coming. I don't know that it seemed like maybe the weather patterns were not forecasting this. How, how does that happen? And what do you guys take away from that to learn? Yeah, that was a really good example of a uh what we call a, it's got a long name, it's QLCS for short, that system, or Squall Line, if you hear Squall Line uh-huh. um, thrown out, that's what that system was that moved through. So as compared to a supercell tornado, which is what you, you think of when you think of the two more tornadoes or the El Reno tornado a few years ago, those were supercell classic uh, thunderstorm, or uh, supercell thunderstorm with a hook echo on the back end. Everybody thinks about that when you're studying weather. Right. But there's not a lot of studying on the Squall Line type uh setup mm-hmm. and you're right nobody really saw that that uh system coming uh well we saw that thunderstorms but the tornadic nature of it and because we only really had one radar scan of it and not to get too into the weeds about it but the radars you know we get a new radar scan every you know four or five minutes mm-hmm. and for our forecasting uh for tornadoes we have to see you know that kind of rotation for two scans and we really only had it for one, and then, like you said, it picked up and it was gone. All right. And the, and the damage was done, and it, I mean, it came it, as quick as it came, it left. And but we did archive all that data, what we did, and we did, like I mentioned, the forecast review. We did mm-hmm. one for that um, for that case study, and then we actually uh, packaged all that up and sent that down to our schoolhouse, the weather schoolhouse at Keesler, and they were really grateful for it too because they don't have a lot of um, they have a lot of um, radar images saved from like the more tornadoes everybody you know the classic examples everybody thinks of but not really these these squall line type setups and so they were they've uh, begun teaching it down there at the schoolhouse and so we're currently you know trying to refine our forecasting for those type of tornadoes and uh like you said the national weather service also um they weren't uh picking up on the potential that day and and then we finally did find out that it was probably an EF zero, maybe an EF one, as it touched down. Right. Very briefly. And thankfully, um, because there was just there, there was no warning, and so mm-hmm. fortunately, it wasn't too big. But 
Is, is there anything that you guys can can look at? I mean, is it just really, is it just literally impossible to determine looking at a squall line data to say we have a pretty good idea that something like this may happen? I mean, is it just too, is it, is it too non-focal or... Uh, there is, it's just, it's just kind of getting through, like I said, looking at the radar is a big, is a big way of us, uh, actually looking for the rotation. So right. there's a couple products you can look at on radar, mm -hmm. uh, but the velocity, which, um, you actually see a lot on television here. A lot of the, uh, the forecasters are really good on the tele on the local news stations here and they'll show the velocity in that rotation. Right. And so we really just have to get into the weeds of it and, and, you know, realize that this isn't going to be a, a classic setup like we're looking for for a supercell in April or May. Right. But this is going to be really quick and we have to react quickly. You know, this may only be one, like I said, one radar image and at one level that we, we see that rotation and we have to jump on it. Right. Now, from having lived here for quite a long time, I mean, I've, I have been out here for all of the big ones since 99 mm -hmm. on and uh, thankfully... You know, we do have a lot of experts around here that that can help out, and 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 you do get to learn a lot. You know, just just yeah. by watching and listening. But um, have you been able to study the the patterns that set up um, particular days like that? Like, can you, can you see a squall line pattern like that coming far out, or is that something that kind of develops pretty quickly? We can usually see that, and we we expected it to kind of be uh, yeah, kind of linear in nature with those. Um, with the with those thunderstorms that day and right. we know the days when it's going to be more uh kind of sporadic with supercells developing you don't mm -hmm. know exactly where cells are going to develop on those days but you know that they're going to be out there right. somewhere and that's and we can usually know that you know a couple days in advance maybe you know 48 to 72 hours in advance and that's right. when we start communicating that to the leadership the wing leaders here on base right um, that hey there's this potential and then we you know from then on we're you know we're communicating you know at a minimum every every day sometimes a couple times a day with an updated forecast yeah see that so how you you hear the terms models a lot and and i don't know if you can get into <laughs> too many specifics about models and what you guys use to forecast but how much um math on your the human side and the model side i mean how much is there on either side like which is determining the better is it the computer models or do, is there ways that you have to determine math and calculations based on what they're saying uh so the computer models actually take it they have a lot of algorithms for a lot of that math that we we learned about in you know in our undergrad mm -hmm. uh studying atmospheric science uh and that that all those algorithms and all that math goes into the it's already accounted for in a lot of these computer models the problem is that there's an infinite number of things that can change from a model run as it goes out, and if it messes up just one parameter, it keeps making that worse and worse and worse as you go farther out in time. Right. So it, that's how they get inaccurate as they go on. Right. Um, so the 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 real limiting factor there is the computation. You know, the the computers that can actually com compute these these models and these algorithms all that way that far out to make you know. To make it more accurate, right. what the human interaction is is looking at that, realizing realizing how the model is what we call handling or how it's verifying at you know the present time, saying, oh, it's a little behind on this feature that I can see on satellite that a satellite image that's actually a observed image, and I can see, oh, I can adjust my forecast because the model is you know two hours behind moving this feature through. So mm -hmm. that's where the human factor really comes into it. So it's not just 
taking the models at face value, but actually digging into them and saying, are these, are they actually verifying right now? Are they accurate? Or are they just what we call, you know, just out to lunch right. and then adjusting the forecast accordingly. Which I, I think is pretty cool. And because probably a lot of people don't know that, you know, you just hear the models a lot, mm-hmm. although the meteorologist is the one taking the, the tomatoes if the forecast is wrong. But I mean, there's just a there's so much more than just looking at this computer that tells you what's going to happen. I mean, that, there is. There's always going to be that that human interaction to make sure that you know, like I said, that it's picking up on you know, you know. Sometimes a lot of these features too, Mark, mm-hmm. will be really small features that a bigger model, like you hear, like the global model or the European, might not pick up on. Right. Uh, but some of our we have smaller scale models that actually they don't go out as far time wise, but they can pick up on a lot of the smaller scale features and because um, it's actually a grid point and if there's a feature that's smaller in between grid points it's not going to pick up on it right so um so yeah we have to we have to look at different models we have to look at different types of models and then look at what's actually happening too at some point you have to look outside <laughs> you do have to yeah. look out the window it's pretty cool um so given the challenges of oklahoma weather um, and we, I think it's pretty famous, but um, does that make Tinker Air Force Base a highly sought after position like yours? It does. Uh, a lot of a lot of weather officers um, put down wanting to come to Tinker. Uh, a lot of weather officers went to OU and they want to mm-hmm. uh, come back home too and, you know, and forecast for, for Oklahoma. Right. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of case studies. Um, like I said, down in our schoolhouse, we have our, our radar course that we teach down there, and a lot, of, most of the case studies there are in Oklahoma. So people who want to come here and that that are really, um, really devout into weather and and really the the weather nerds that we have in our in our <laughs> career field really like to come here. A lot. I know a lot of people in our flight and past people that have been here storm chase themselves. And right. Yeah. So it's definitely a a uh, hot ticket that people want to put down for when that that comes open on assignment list. That's pretty awesome. So, how does working here compare to working at other installations you've been? And uh, you know, we also even the challenges here, like intersecting runways. Like mm-hmm. I, I think we may be one of the few or the only Air Force base that has the the intersecting the two runways like that. Do you know from a weather standpoint if that's specifically necessary because of Oklahoma, and and how do these challenges differ from uh, the other places you've been? Uh, the it it always differs no matter what base you go to. There's always going to have to be local effects you have to learn about, and um, and and so that just takes time. You got to usually get through four seasons where whenever you go there, and then sometimes even that's not enough to see like what to expect. Right. Uh, the intersecting runways is nice for our um, when we do have crosswind issues. That's been a nice, um, nice feature to fall back on when if we do have a crosswind on one of the runways that we're mm-hmm. able to switch to the other runway. I haven't had that in any really any other base that you know we've been able to you know, flex like that and keep the mission going. So right. uh, it's not as much of a – crosswinds are no longer as much of a limiting factor as, as at some bases I've been at where it's pretty much shuts down everything for that day if you get crosswinds. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now you've recently come back from a deployment. I have. Um, mm-hmm. So you were downrange, and there's a lot of varying um, – weather environments that you'll be in depending on where you go deploy so Mm -hmm. uh, what's it like being a a weather forecaster 
downrange in a deployed atmosphere as opposed to being back here at home at Tinker? It's it's very different. And like I said, just on the last uh, question, you know, ideally you'd like to have four seasons. You don't get that on a six-month deployment, so you have to hit the ground running. For a new, you know, new part of the world that you've never been to, or or if you have been to, you know, it's been you were only there for six months before, so you don't know, and it may be a different season. Right. And so you also don't have as much of the um, the models that the weather models like we have uh, here on stateside or radars that we take for granted. The nice stuff we have that all over the U.S. We don't usually have that in less austere environments, so we actually have to rely on a lot of our tactical equipment, mm-hmm. our tactical radars, that sort of thing to forecast. Uh, and that's hugely important because some of those areas you in may, may be or may not be a combat area. So exactly, extremely critical to the mission. Um, and so with that, I think that's um, that's a a pretty good place to wrap up. Yeah. Um, we really appreciate you coming over and spending course, time with us today. Time. I love talking weather. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love talking it with you. Um, I love seeing your briefs at the, the morning, uh, standups. And, uh, before we do get out of here, we'd, we'd love to extend a special birthday wish to our sound engineer, Jillian Coleman, who, uh, recently celebrated not a milestone birthday yet, but certainly one forthcoming. <laughs> So with that, uh, thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of Tinker Talks. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, and uh, please subscribe and download uh, Jetstream. I'm sure you're going to be downloading at least this this episode. And uh, we would please love to to see the feedback. We want to hear what people want want us to cover and what you want to hear about. Uh, and of course, you can follow us on social media uh, at Tinker Air Force Base on Facebook and Instagram and at team underscore on the Twitter. And, of course, uh, follow us on our website, www.tinker.af.mil. So until next time, I'm Mark Hybers, your host, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Have yourself a great week.